We're going to be turning to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9. Amen. It's truly good to be in church this evening. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9. Give you a minute to get there. They're going to put it on the screen. It reads, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Amen. And one other scripture, you don't have to turn there, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's all pray before we get into the word tonight. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to be in your house this evening. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would have free will and free reign amongst us. Lord, that your word would go forth on good ground, that we could receive something from you in this place tonight, that we can grow in understanding and in knowledge. And, Lord, that you would do something in your church, oh, Lord. I pray that your will be done and your kingdom come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Tonight we're going to be talking about understanding covenant. That's sort of my title for this evening, understanding covenant. And I have to be a little transparent with everyone tonight. Uh, This lesson started out a while ago as a study on the name of Jesus, but over time it's morphed into this thought. And so um, we're going to be talking about covenant, and we might get a little bit about the name of Jesus in there. Amen. So what is covenant? When you say covenant, It immediately brings to the forefront of your mind something that sanctifies, something that's serious. And uh, I had to consult a doctor on this matter, Dr. Google, and he told me that it is simply an agreement. A covenant is simply an agreement. So modern-day covenants would be a marriage, a contract, a peace treaty, and any other form that uh, has an agreement of terms within two parties. In our scripture that we read tonight and throughout the Old Testament, the word covenant uh, is mentioned, and uh, it comes from the Hebrew word bereath. Now, I have a little bit of original language tonight. I'm not going to have too much. Uh, I don't want to lose anybody on this midweek service, but bereath, to no surprise, means covenant. So the Hebrew word for covenant, bereath, means covenant. Praise God. And uh, so there's not much a difference in those definitions, but the interesting and cool fact is that when you look in this resource, the Bible Dictionary, it gives us some insight to the context of the meaning of covenant. Most times uh, that the Old Testament uses the word covenant, it says it was made. But uh, that word made in the Hebrew is karat, and it actually means to cut. So quite literally it says cut a covenant. Now it sounds kind of weird to us, but the modern day equivalent is cut me a deal or, you know, cut me some slack. It kind of comes from that uh, root word. And so we have to remember everything that we read in Scripture had a primary meaning to the original people that it was intended for. And for in order for us to fully understand the meaning of the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we have to understand the cultural context. For example, wealth back then was displayed in livestock and in land, not as, mu- not as much as money as it is today. So when we read that our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, it means that he owns it all. He owns everything. He's not lacking in any resources. Amen. But we would not have that full understanding of the meaning if we did not understand the cultural and historical context of that time period. And so the same is true for this scenario. In in the ancient Near East, that's the time period of the Old Testament, we find historical examples of this cutting of covenant. 
It's most often attributed to the Hittites, but it was practiced by everyone in the region. And the one I'm going to be talking about tonight and focusing on is called a suzerain or a suzerain covenant. Excuse me. So a suzerain covenant. This covenant was between unequal parties. They had one between equal parties. That was another name that I didn't write down. But this one is a suzerain covenant. It's between unequal parties in terms of status and of power. So what would happen is there would be a king who was strong and mighty and had more power and more resources than another king. And he would make him his vassal. And they would enter into a covenant. The suzerain or the high king, the more powerful king, would offer protection and aid to the vassal in return for their undying loyalty and faithfulness. This was the type of the covenant that the Lord often made with those in the Old Testament. There were normally about four parts to uh, the suzerain covenant that I'm going to run through quite quickly. But it's important to note these individual parts. The first was the title. This identified the giver of the treaty, his titles, and the nature of the relationship between the parties. In the case of these specific treaties, the vassal was bound by an exclusive relationship with this high king. Nobody else. It was exclusively with the high king. The second part was there was some history that was read. Uh, This was the observing of past benefits given from the high king and why they should rule over the other king, the vassal, Uh, or the lesser king. The third was the laws or the rules outlined by the suzerain or the high king. These most often were reflected as if-then statements. If you do this, then I will do this. Or if you do that, or if I do this, then you will do that. And uh, there were some more restrictions regarding that exclusive loyalty and dependence that should come from no one else, along with the promises from this more powerful king to this lesser king. And lastly, the final aspect was an oath. This was primarily displayed as the seal, or as we might think today, the handshake of the deal. It's what sealed it all. The most common method of ratifying, and this is off a a resource, um, the most common method of ratifying a treaty involved the cutting up of an animal and walking in between it. The unspoken implication was that if the covenant was broken, then the offender would become like the sawn asunder animal. This is why we see in Scripture The Bible uses a covenant. If either party broke that covenant, the covenant would obviously be broken, but then the offender should be treated as the cut-up animal. This is actually exemplified in Genesis chapter 15. If Sister Brianna, you can throw that up there for us. Genesis 15 and verse 7. Like I said, this was in the ancient Near Eastern time, but the Lord used it in that time period because it meant something to that people. And so in verse 7 it says, And he said unto him, this is the Lord speaking unto Abram, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know uh, that I shall inherit it? Abram saying, how am I going to know? What's the sign? And the Lord said unto him, take me, the Lord's telling Abram, take from me an heifer of three years old and a she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Verse 10 says, and he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. Um, And like I just stated in these suzerain covenants, this is exactly what Abraham did, or Abram at this point did. He cut up the animals and put them on two sides. And then uh, the next few verses after that talks about how Abram went into the deep sleep and the Lord was talking to him. Uh, Let's skip down to verse 17. Verse 17 says, And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. 
And the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. We just read an example in the Bible of the suzerain covenant. The Lord told Abram the promise in verse 17, and we see a smoking furnace and a burning lamp, which both of those represent the spirit and the presence of God in the Old Testament. And it says that that lamp and that furnace walked in between the pieces of sacrifice, just how they would do in these suzerain covenants. Abram obviously understood that the Lord was making a covenant with him. Abraham understood what was going on. He's seen it happen. These other kings and vassals, they were doing it all the time. Abraham knew what was going on. And we see that the name of the giver is listed in verse 1, but uh, the Lord repeats his name throughout the story. The Lord made his promises just like they would in the suzerain covenants, and then he walked through the sacrifice, giving him the seal or the oath of his promise. Now, I want to take a minute and examine the name of the Lord. This is what I talked about earlier, because in order to have a covenant some, with someone, you need to know their name. Everyone has a proper name. And so if, uh, I'm sorry, Mita, if you can throw up our first scripture I believe it was Deuteronomy chapter 7. Yeah, chapter 7, verse 9. If you could throw that up on the screen for us. Thank you. And so uh, when, when we see Lord in Scripture, how we have here on verse number 9, it says, Know therefore that the Lord, and if you can see it in your Bible or on the screen, L-O-R-D are in all capitalized. Now this signifies, whenever you see this in Scripture, it signifies that's the proper name for the Lord. That's the covenant name of God. Uh, it's Yahweh or Jehovah. And so, uh, like I said, this is the covenant name of God. When you see God, thy God, and he is God, the faithful God, a lot of times the Jews, they would use Elohim or Adonai for Lord. But when you see in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, when they're all capitalized like that in the King James Version, it signifies the proper name of God. It is his proper name. Anytime you see these things, like I just said, it's a proper name. I just said that, so let's keep going. Um, the Jews were so reverent of the Lord that they did not even fully write out this name or say it in public. That's why a lot of times they said Adonai or Elohim because they knew who they were referring to, but they did not want to take the name's Lord or the Lord's name in vain. And so originally when this was translated, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but it's information. It's what happened. So originally, they just had the consonants, Y-H-W-H. And then how we get Yahweh is when you take the vowel points from Adonai, and there's a lot of Hebrew in there. But basically, that's, that's the, the proper name of God. Instead, um, I just said that. There we go. But when you see the proper name of God in all caps, when you're reading your Bible, you need to take a minute and make note that he's acting or interacting as the personal covenant God. When you see that in scripture, because in this case, like we just read, he's in covenant with the people of Israel. He's being a personal interactionary Lord with his people. And so it makes sense that we don't see this proper name of the Lord until Genesis chapter 2, because it's in Genesis chapter 2 where he starts to deal with man and establishes that original covenant. Uh, for how can you enter into an agreement with someone without their name? Even today, you need a name. It identifies who you are, what you stand for. Amen. Names today, they don't unfortunately have as much meaning and as much weight as they did in the Bible, but the name of someone immediately denotes their status, their character, their power, and their reputation. Uh, quick story, I couldn't help but think about this when I was preparing this lesson. Uh, my mom, with her work, she worked with a company, and 
they had a bunch of horses and they worked with kids and I got the opportunity to go. And it was really cool. I love horses. They're really cool animals. And um, he was a Christian man who owned it. His name was Bill. And he told me that when he was young, his parents would look at him and say, remember your name when he was going out at night. They just said, remember your name, meaning remember your reputation. You know, you're carrying our name and you represent us. And I couldn't help but think about that story. And that just stuck with me because it's so true. Even for us as Christians, we have to remember our name. Amen. Amen. So to call on the name of the Lord in the Old Testament is often translated to invoke or call with the name of the Lord. You can technically also translate it to be to the name to be pronounced over someone. This is first seen in Genesis chapter 4, 26, when, the refer- when uh, it's referencing the godly line of Seth. It says, they began to call on the name of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 10. I believe I gave that back there to you, Brianna. Sorry if I didn't. I got a lot of scripture now. I'm sorry. I love the word. <laughs> Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 10. There we go. And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord Notice the all caps there, that covenant name, and they shall be afraid of thee. This meant that they were his people. They were called by his name, and they had the name of the Lord, which contained his power and his might. That's why the other people would be afraid of them, because they had the name. And I can't help but notice that it says, all the people of the earth shall see that you are called. That means that these people have something different about them, different how they dress, different how they acted. Even in the Old Testament, amen. So what does it mean to invoke the name of the Lord? Uh, There's three things that come along with invoking the name of the Lord. It's ownership, redemption, and the Lord's presence. Anytime something was named, it was owned by the person that named it. Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 5 says, But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all of your tribes to put his name there. Even unto his habitation, it was his because he put his name there. He owned it. Shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt come. He owns it, and that's why he put his name there. The next is redemption. The Lord saved or purchased the Israelites from the Egyptians. He redeemed them. When you enter a covenant, you get the name of the Lord because you become his special or peculiar purchased treasure. He purchased you. Once he delivered them, then they became his people after he redeemed them. And last is the Lord's presence. Where the Lord's name is pronounced is where his covenant presence is experienced. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 16 says that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. How did Cain leave the presence of the Lord when God's omnipresent? When God's presence is everywhere, where he can be anywhere at any time. We know God's a spirit. So how did Cain leave it? What happened was Cain left the covenant presence of the Lord. He broke that covenant with his sin, and he broke his promise unto the Lord. That's how he left that special presence of covenant with God. All these things accompanied having the name. All these things were accompanied when you had the name. Only those in covenant can have access to the name. It's very similar to marriage today when a young man and young woman gets married. She normally takes the name of the last, uh, the last name of the man. And when she takes that name, she gets everything that comes with him. She gets his reputation. She gets his wealth. She gets his power. Everything that comes with him, she gets. And it's, it's the same thing with the Lord. When we get the name, we get all those things from the Lord. Amen. So 
let's look at what covenants we see in the Bible and what it means for us today. You might be thinking, all right, Brother Anthony, you lost me up until this point. I, have, I caught a few good things, but I really don't know what you're talking about. So here we go. I'm, I'm going to try to catch it. So God made very distinct covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and finally with us, all humanity. Most of these covenants were renewed to others at different times, but these were the original men that the covenants were established to. Covenant is a result of an active, ongoing choice to devote oneself to the Lord and to no one else. We know that we cannot serve two masters, and uh, for you will love one and hate the other. And we know that our Lord, our God, is a jealous God. It's the same thing just like marriage. Your covenant, your love, it's not a feeling. It's an active choice that you make every single day. Each and every covenant was building upon the previous and pointing the, that, pre, that current generation to God. You see, Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31 pointed toward this new covenant that they didn't have in the Old Testament. It says, I'll read it uh, real quick. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. They broke that covenant. Although I was, the, I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. He said, I brought them out, but they broke the covenant that I gave them. Verse 33 says, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. You only get the privilege of belonging to God after you enter into covenant with him. And they shall teach, verse 34, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This was a prophecy of the new covenant to come in New Testament times. And in your own time, I would encourage you to read the book of Hebrews in its entirety. It's a wonderful book. But specifically verse, or chapter 8 and chapter 9. When you read chapter 8, Eight in chapter 9, you'll find everything I'm talking about tonight. I believe Paul was the writer, and I believe he lays it out very clearly what this process looks like. You see, the old covenant, with the old covenant, it was an earthly covenant. The new covenant is a heavenly. The old covenant was a copy and a shadow of things to come. The new covenant was real and true. The old covenant had fickle uh, human priests, but the new covenant, we have our high priest, which is Jesus Christ. The old covenant was regulated by the law, but the new covenant is going to be divinely administered. Uh, the old covenant had sacrifices constantly repeated, but the new covenant has one sacrifice carried out for once and for all. Amen. The old covenant offered the blood of animals, but the new covenant offers the blood of Jesus Christ. And he offered his own blood. Amen. And the old covenant had no inner cleansing, but the new covenant leads to sanctification and a cleansed conscience. The way to this new covenant is through Jesus. If you didn't know where I was going with that, ta-da. This new covenant is through Jesus. Amen. That name of Jesus can save us because that name obtains the covenant. Jesus literally means Yahweh or Jehovah saves when you look at it in its meaning. More than that, though, Jesus filled fully, fulfilled the old law that demanded a spotless lamb for sacrifice and the blood for remission of sins. The blood of Jesus was offered once and for all on Calvary, and now there's no more need for an animal sacrifice. <laughs> Praise God. I can't help but imagine what we talked about earlier tonight with the suzerain covenant, uh, that it was initiated by a sacrifice and the people will walk through it. 
And if they broke that covenant, they should be treated as that dead animal. God loves us so much that he provided himself as the payment for our breaking of the covenant. Amen. Sister Brianna, if you could go to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 7. I'm going to read it off the screen with everybody. This uh, story in Genesis chapter 2 is is of Abraham. He had just been blessed with Isaac, his son, his promised son. And the Lord asked him to take him up and to sacrifice him in the mountains. Genesis chapter 22, verse 7. Oh, she beat me. All right. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac was asking, where's the lamb? Verse number eight. Next verse. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse number seven through 16. Sorry about that. There we go. Uh, And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. That was a statement of faith by Abraham. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord, notice, all capitalized right there, the angel of the covenant God called out to him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God. He kept his covenant. He kept his promise. Seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Verse number 13. And Abraham lifted his eyes. And look, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Praise God. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. The next verse, this is my favorite part. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is to this day in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, verse 16, and said, By myself I have, have I sworn, saith the Lord, covenant name of Jesus, covenant, covenant name of Yahweh. For because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son. You see, back there in verse number 16, he said, by myself I swore this thing. These kings back in this time period, they would say, if I don't hold up to my end of the agreement, I'm going to swear to a higher king that can hold me accountable. But what the Lord was saying, he was saying, there's no one stronger than me. There's no one mightier than me. I can swear by myself to my word and to my law that I will not break my promise. I will not break my covenant. Praise God. And why you think Abraham might have been wrong when he said the Lord will provide himself a lamb for the offering, but there was a ram caught in the thicket. I come to tell you, I'm so excited, praise God, that in the New Testament times, when John saw Jesus in chapter 1, he said, behold, the lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Praise God. You see what Abraham said? He said it in the prophetic that there was going to be a lamb. The Lord himself was going to provide that lamb. And it came to pass in New Testament times in Jesus. Praise God. Now let's remember that the party that broke that covenant would be deemed to be treated as that slain animal. Humanity broke the covenant, but Jesus paid the price. Jesus was the one that was treated like a slain animal when it should have been us. It should have been us, humanity. 
We find in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We get the name when we are baptized in the name of Jesus. It is called over us when we are buried with Christ in baptism. And that's why we are able to sit with him in heavenly places because we entered into covenant with God. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, that at every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise God. If you didn't know it, that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 21. It says, tell ye and bring them near, yea, let them make counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord, the covenant name of God? For there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself... I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and it shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. That was Yahweh talking in the Old Testament and it was talking about Jesus in the New Testament. I've come to tell you that there's power in what we believe, church. There's power in believing that there's one God, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. And that power is in the name Jesus. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. There is one God and one name. And when we receive that Holy Spirit and he begins to write the law in our hearts, just like it said in Jeremiah chapter 31, and not on tables of stone, it happens in that process of being filled with his spirit. Yes, he is Jehovah Jireh, my provider. But when I have that covenant relationship with him, all I need to speak is the name of Jesus and I get everything that's associated with him. All I need is the name of Jesus and he provides. All I need is the name of Jesus and he leads. All I need is the name of Jesus and he provides and he makes a way when there was no way. Praise God. And that's all I came tonight to do is to simply encourage us to renew our vows with the Lord, to recall what he has done for us just like they would do in these treaties, to remember where we were when we were an outsider and we didn't have the name and we didn't have that covenant relationship and we had to try to do it on our own. But now we're, we're, we're in covenant relationship with God. We have a high king who can give us his resources. We have a high king who can give us his power. We have a high king who can give us his army when we need it just as long as we stay faithful. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Worship you, Lord. If the music can come, I'm coming to a close. To remind us that we need to be committed to our God, to pledge our allegiance to him and no one else. This type of covenant that we talked about affirms that we're not living for ourselves, but that we are bought with a price. And with that price, we have some rules to follow in order to have victory. If you are disturbed in your life tonight, I would encourage you to take a look at your life and your covenant with God. 
If there's a lack of victory or a lack of peace, say, Lord, is there any, is there any covenant that I broke with you? Is there, is there somewhere in my heart that is not submitted to you? Is there somewhere that I'm submitted to one another? Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. We can all stand. I'm, I'm coming to a close quickly. But I'm just so excited, and I feel empowered to know that we're not in this earth on our own. We have a high king that is fighting for us when we need him. All we have to do is keep the covenant with our God. Amen.